Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. News that will likely be welcomed very much by sexual assault survivors all across Illinois. Governor J.B. Pritzker and other top state authority figures announcing this week the state has eliminated its massive backlog of rape kits. Here's more from this week's news conference. Today, we take a giant leap forward toward bringing sexual assault survivors the justice and closure they deserve. When I came into office, I promised to support and uplift our state's survivors, to put the power back in their hands. We had to fix the systems that are supposed to support them in pursuit of justice. I'm proud to say that we've done just that. We devised a plan and made historic investments into the Division of Forensic Services to hire additional personnel, acquired state-of-the-art robotics to speed up turnaround time, and started using new software to make our laboratories as efficient as possible. We are designing and building a new state crime lab in Joliet and are opening a new lab in Decatur by the end of the summer, increasing even further our ability to handle cases. And we will continue to invest in the tools that help us solve crimes. Just this morning, I signed into law a measure that will add even more cameras to our expressways to catch those who are committing crimes like carjackings. I want to thank Leader Greenwood, who's here with us today, for her leadership and her tireless work on this issue. As a matter of fact, today we are across the street from the newly established Illinois State Police Forensic Science Institute at the Belleville Educational Campus, where the next wave of Illinois' forensic scientists will be educated, trained, and hired. All of these investments are adding up to real, tangible results that are making a difference. Case in point, when I came into office, there was a massive backlog of DNA from sexual assault cases waiting to be processed. In some cases, kits were misplaced or sat on shelves for years. In the worst cases, they were lost entirely. In the past, survivors waited years with no word just to find out that their evidence was never even processed in the first place. That's legally and morally unacceptable. Think about that. What kind of justice system forces survivors to sit and wait without closure, unable to heal on their own terms? Our system was inherently re-traumatizing, and it was long past time for change. That's what happens when government doesn't invest in critical services. Under my predecessor, our labs were chronically underfunded. Forensic scientists were stuck with old equipment, cumbersome software, and constant staffing shortages. Every day, they got more cases than they could process, and the backlog snowballed. When we began this undertaking, nearly 2,000 sexual assault cases were older than state law requires. Today, I am proud to announce that the DNA backlog of sexual assault cases is zero. I want to congratulate ISP Director Brendan Kelly, Deputy Director Robin Woolery, and the whole of the state police for their commitment to getting this work done. 
I also want to be sure that survivors can also now monitor. I want to be sure that you know that survivors can also now monitor their evidence using a system called Checkpoint. From collection at the hospital through law enforcement pickup and submission to the forensic lab, and lastly to the state's attorney's office. Survivors can now check the status of their evidence in real time in the setting that makes them most comfortable. Under the previous administration, Illinois was letting criminals off the hook and failing those deserving of justice. No longer. From the beginning of 2019 to the end of 2021, we reduced firearms evidence backlogs by 52%. The work is not over. Far from it. Crime survivors in Illinois should not have to live in limbo for months and months to get a semblance of closure. So we will keep making progress until the work is done. To survivors in this state, there are no words to lessen the unimaginable trauma and pain that you've been through. I want you to know that your governor hears you. When you speak out, our systems will respond. It is our responsibility to give you the autonomy and justice that you deserve. Leader Greenwood, Senator Belt, Representative Stewart, Mayor Gregory, and County Board Chairman Kern have been unwavering champions for survivors in their communities and throughout the state. It is truly an honor to stand with them as we recognize this landmark occasion. I'm proud to work alongside leaders like Carrie Ward from the Illinois Coalition Against Sexual Assault. Her organization serves as a network of sexual assault crisis centers, supporting survivors every step of the way. Today's milestones are a direct result of ICASA's trauma-informed recommendations and steadfast advocacy. To Illinois State Police Director Brendan Kelly, members of the Illinois Forensic Science Commission, with your dedication, we can ensure that perpetrators of sexual violence are prosecuted so our survivors get the justice and peace that they deserve. With that, it is truly my pleasure to introduce to you the ISP Director, Brendan Kelly. To reduce crime and bring justice and healing to survivors, we have to solve crime. And to do that, we need to ensure we're using sound forensic science, the most effective testing procedures, and the latest technology quickly. Forensic science is a, is a rapidly expanding realm of criminal justice because it provides scientific facts based on hard evidence. Evidence collected meticulously by law enforcement, crime scene investigators across the state, and submitted to the Illinois State Police Forensic Crime Labs. As a statewide forensic system, and one of the only forensic systems servicing an entire state and one of the largest cities in the United States, Chicago, ISP Forensics is one of the largest forensic systems in the world. Our scientists use well-established scientific methods without bias or prejudice to help establish probative evidence of potential suspects used by criminal investigators, prosecutors, judges, and juries across this state every day. Over the last several decades, with swelling evidence submissions and unstable funding for hiring and investing in technology, a backlog of evidence awaiting testing continuously grew. Despite the factors hampering the quick turnaround of evidence, the men and women of the Illinois State Police Forensic Services maintained their unwavering commitment to rigorous scientific standards. 
and an unbiased approach to the evidence presented to them. Understanding the critical importance of reducing delays in evidence testing, the Governor, General Assembly, and ISP leadership initiated an intensive effort to improve efficiency in our labs. Through the implementation of new forensic technologies, including robotics, we have reduced our turnaround times for processing evidence, bringing those who break the law more quickly to justice. We implemented a team-based approach to working cases focused on accountability and transition to a new, leaner, meaner, paperless laboratory information management system led by our first deputy director, Matt Davis. ISP continues to hire additional forensic scientists, piloting fast-track training to ensure we are meeting the statutory timeframes to process evidence even more quickly when possible. Hiring in today's competitive job market is challenging across all industries, but especially in those industries needing specialized education and training like forensic services. In order to sustain our staffing needs just across the street, we are establishing the Illinois State Police Forensic Science Institute at the Belleville Educational Campus. The Institute will be part of the Illinois State Police Forensic Science Training Program and will allow ISP to train additional forensic scientists, crime scene investigators, and our other law enforcement partners, some of you are here today, to continue ISP's mission and our collective mission to accurately process forensic evidence as quickly as possible. We're also building a new state-of-the-art crime lab near Joliet, thanks to the strong bipartisan support of the governor's infrastructure investments and opening another indicator with the support of this year's, uh, fisc this fiscal year's budget recently also signed by the governor. Much more new information about the root of the problem at the Bioergia Renewables plant in Peoria. It's been revealed and confirmed that a leak is what triggered an explosion May 11th, the updated info from interim Peoria Fire Chief Sean Solberger. He tells us there was a leak detected in bin number 75 about five minutes prior to that night's explosion. Solberger indicated there was somehow a puncture in that bin that's not been explained. Two employees were injured the night of the blast and for weeks afterward Peoria City fire crews, Bioorgia engineers, along with experts in multiple fields from across the region in Chicago, spent thousands of man-hours attempting to avert an even greater disaster. A factory environment is quite volatile, and in combination with explosive grain dust, it can be even worse. For now, the chief has estimated the bill for time spent responding to the emergency will likely remain under a million. He said he planned on delivering that cost estimate to city elected leaders in the coming days. Barely a week into the response, Solberger had mentioned that Peoria firefighters spent upwards of 2,000 man-hours racking up a hefty load of overtime for firefighters and commanders in the process. The Peoria Fire Department finally left the plant site last weekend once demolition efforts had gotten well underway to remove damaged portions of the plant. Now, my interview, getting the full update from Chief Solberger. Obviously a fascinating story. It's one that we continue to follow closely. We had two people who got hurt with an explosion that happened the night of May 11th. And, Chief, you've got new information about kind of what happened. What, what do you know now? What we do know um, through our investigative process and working with OSHA is that there was a leak in Ben 75. Um, the safety team recognized that right away they started their safety protocols and i think that that's the reason why we were only dealing with two minor injuries as opposed to something much more significant yeah someone who i'm sure understands the um, urgency of a situation probably like this 
you've kind of given some praise to BioWarsha for handling what was probably a pretty tight situation at the time. You mentioned what was the time frame between you know the leak and then the explosion? Less than five minutes. And they did what in that time? Try to can you so paint that, that picture time, for us? Yeah, the way yeah the way that we understand it coming from BioUrgia and the witness statements that we took that uh, the officer or whatever their designation is um, recognized that they had a leak, which is not abnormal. When you're dealing with grain, corn products, chemicals, leaks do happen. Mm -hmm. That being said, they have a safety protocol that they have to follow. Once he recognized the leaks, he started the safety evacuation and then started the process to try to mitigate the leak itself, but basically cleared the area. And then within five minutes, they had an explosion. Man, I tell you, it's it's uh it's fast and crazy. You know, all the stuff that happens in that five minutes, it's probably pretty darn intense, man. And it probably, if if I had to ask him after the fact, it probably didn't feel like five minutes. It probably felt like thirty seconds. Sure. So. <laughs> uh, well, um, now there was something you had mentioned too about um, this idea that it was a leak, and I guess the the question mark that still pops over my head is okay, a leak of of what can I, you know, I don't have a good idea about that. A leak of what? So when we say leak, so when we're dealing with corn and grain products, a leak would be dust. Got it. But we also, what we have learned through the process too, is that the dust is the, is our biggest factor that we're concerned with. We're not concerned with as much about the product itself as much as it is that product combined with air to create this dust, because that's truly with the explosiveness, not even the flammability, is just the explosive capabilities of that dust finding an ignition source, and then that's exactly what we were dealing with. So a lot of times when people hear the word leak, they think liquid, um, something ex- um, something flammable. That, that's not what we were dealing with at all. They were dealing with a puncture in that bin, which created a leak of this dust. They knew right away that their biggest concern was as if this dust was not mitigated and it found an ignition source. That's what they were trying to prevent. And unfortunately, there just wasn't enough time to prevent the inevitable. Well, now I'm just even more fascinated by the scenario because you think to yourself, okay, something like this has happened. You know, the leak could have happened way before it was detected, right? I mean, that's that's sure, entirely plausible. Yeah, that plausible, possibility right? exists. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's not normal business hours. So they call it a skeleton crew, which there's still a fair amount of people working yeah. that day or that night. Uh, but it obviously not as many as would be during normal business hours. So, and, and, and I mean, this leak could have been going on for some time, unbeknownst to them, until this person came into that area. Sure. And then that idea that you—I I love how you kind of described the idea that this this very volatile dust in air environment is kind of it's finding an ignition source. So I mean, it could be as something you tell me. As benign as some guy maybe on the grounds, um, and I don't know what safety regulations would be in place. Don't smoke a cigarette at a grain plant or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that I don't know, occur. but you know. Yeah, yeah so they, they have all kinds of those signs, safety features. Yeah. So that's not the case. What yeah. you're running into is that you have belts, conveyors, furnaces, you know, friction. all over. Yeah, any type of friction, any type of spark anything and i think that that does show you what we which we already knew but as you start to see it in motion the volatility 
of this corn and this grain dust and what it could potentially do. So it's it's very alarming. Well, um, I suppose I would just ask, I guess, you know, now that you kind of are helping the public understand this about what happened, you look at it from your perspective and you're not wagging a finger at bio this one is what is what it's not at all i'm actually to be honest with you cooper um i'm halfway giving them a high five i think that they did an incredible job in an unenviable situation their safety protocols were spot on they cleared the area they started their mitigation process and it's just unfortunate that an explosion occurred but if you didn't have those safety protocols in place if you didn't have the proper training and education we could have been dealing with something far more significant all right, Chief, I'd say that's about everything. What else is there to add that we don't know if there is anything? I don't, I don't think much of anything. I think this investigation that we're doing is still ongoing. Um, we're slowly taking the corn and the grain out of uh, Silo 75, still working with OSHA on that investigation, and um, we're hoping to be able to wrap it up here in the coming weeks, but we know that this portion of it is just a much slower process. It's a good follow-up. Um, we're looking down the road at some stuff that could create a little bit of political whatever, but who pays mm-hmm. Who pays for this is a question. I don't necessarily Fire. pose it, but you're trying to help figure that out as, as far as I understand. Yes. Yep. Yep. That is true. So we're working internally. We know what, we, what costs that we had associated with that. Um, I'm preparing that to be able to present to the city manager tomorrow. Any idea about ballpark numbers on it yet? Um, I, I probably don't want to speak on that quite yet. Um, it's not, I was asked yesterday if it was a million dollars. It's not that, um, you know, but once I have that tabulated, I think it is public information and I will provide that. When you're, I'll go ahead and ask you this before maybe you have to make the argument, um, is if there were an idea that it, you know, we spent so darn much on something that. You know, didn't happen, blah, 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 blah. If criticism mm-hmm. were to come that it was too costly in some way or another, like what would a response to that be from you? A response would be to me is always thinking of the alternative. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I can go down this rabbit hole. We don't respond. We say, this is your problem. You take care of it. Now, let's say that we have an additional explosion. Let's say that we have a structural collapse. Let's say that we somehow have impacted the Cedar Street Bridge. Sure. Right. Let's say that as this gets into the 100% alcohol that's in the six bins directly behind it, the what ifs just keep on unraveling. Yeah. And they're so unpredictable. I think that there would be a much higher level of scrutiny for not responding and not attempting to mitigate as opposed to what we did. The state of Illinois welcomes a new high performance racing event and all the economic stimulus that comes with it. State officials, elected and racing industry leaders, gathered this week to mark the occasion. Okay, we'll get started here. Uh, Welcome everyone to uh, Madison, Illinois. To say it's uh, an exciting day is certainly an understatement as we're kicking off the first ever Enjoy Illinois 300 Cup Race. Uh, I don't know who ordered the weather, but thank you. It's wonderful and beautiful. Uh, It's certainly just a historic day. Uh, Standing here with me are a few people who have made uh, a big dream come to reality. Uh, Jay Hoffman and uh, Dave Stewart in particular 
really just have developed a tremendous friendship that I know will last a lifetime. Just great guys, people who share a common mission uh, with me and we all share the same dream. Um, as we prepare, prepare to host a full capacity crowd this weekend, we have the state of Illinois to thank as well in so many ways. Uh, for years, over a decade, we've been working together on this project and to see what has come together in the last uh, couple of months has just been truly epic. Uh, it's such a great opportunity to work with, uh, with so many wonderful people. As our title sponsor for the Enjoy Illinois 300, the Department of Tourism, IDOT, and our local leadership, and all the way up to the state capitol and the support of the governor, Governor J.B. Pritzker. It's just been a wonderful experience and the perfect example of a public-private partnership. So it's my honor to um, honor to host this event in a great, the great state of Illinois, helping the state reopen after so many challenging months of the pandemic. And looking ahead, the success of this raceway truly can deliver economic revitalization and transformational change for southwestern Illinois. Thank you all for all the support in making this a reality. And now please help me in welcoming Governor J.B. Pritzker. Wow, well thank you very much, Curtis, and, and congratulations again on this tremendous win for the Worldwide Technology Raceway and for the Metro East. I also want to recognize the WWT founder and chair, Dave Stewart. Dave is truly one of Illinois' great leaders in business. He's the Grand Marshal of this weekend's race, and thanks to you and to Curtis and so many others, I'm very, yeah. I really am very proud to uh, be here with our Illinois Secretary of Transportation, Omar Osman, with Mayor John Hamm, with St. Clair County Board Chair, Mark Kern, Leader Jay Hoffman, Leader LaToya Greenwood, Senator Chris Belt, and Representative Katie Stewart, who I get to work with, all four of those uh, folks, I get to work with in Springfield, uh, and they are bringing home the bacon for the areas that they represent, particularly right here. Already, the inaugural Enjoy Illinois 300 is proving to be one for the books. I'm thrilled to share that Sunday's event has sold out. That's the first ever sellout and the largest single day crowd that this track has ever had. And today is Richard Petty Day. So this afternoon, the legend himself will kick off the series' first laps, uh, and we get to enjoy watching that. We all knew from the beginning how much this event would mean for this region. So I was pleased to be able to work with local leaders to help make it happen. NASCAR Cup races are some of the biggest and best sporting events in the entire world. And as you can see, nobody does it better than Illinois. The Enjoy Illinois 300 is a unique experience that shows tens of thousands of racing fans why Illinois is truly the middle of everything. That's the title of our tourism campaign for the state. Illinois is the middle of everything, and you're helping us to convey that to so many people. When you come to Illinois, you're in the center of it all. 
the attractions, the architecture, nature, food, and of course, world-class sporting events like the NASCAR Enjoy Illinois 300. As Illinois rises in national prominence, we're making investments in the reasons for people to live, work, and play here. From extending Metrolink to the Mid-America Airport, which is adding hundreds of jobs at a new Boeing facility, to creating jobs with infrastructure investments at America's Central Port, to increasing mass transit access throughout Madison and St. Clair counties, Metro East is open for business and for tourism, attracting residents and visitors alike. So while you're here, check out Cahokia Mounds, the largest pre-Columbian Native American city in the United States, or head over to Alton for an outdoor adventure, or get this year's family Christmas card out of the way at the world's largest ketchup bottle, just over in Collinsville. One of many fun photo ops along Illinois' Route 66. And here at the raceway, catch Illinois' mascot, Big Lincoln, cheering you on at the mini track. There are so many ways to enjoy Illinois. I want to once again congratulate and thank the Worldwide Technology Raceway team and Curtis Francois on the return of NASCAR to Illinois. It marks yet another reason to come visit the Metro East and to enjoy Illinois. And with that, I'm very proud to turn it over to really an incredible voice for this entire region who works every day in the State House, in our capital, uh, to lift up the people of this area, and that's leader Jay Hoffa. Jay? Well, thank you, Governor. Uh, I'll be brief. Curtis, thank you for your, uh, your kind remarks. Uh, I first met uh, Curtis, I believe, uh, nearly 10 years ago, and it was Curtis Francois's vision that has culminated in this uh, NASCAR race and this wonderful weekend here in southwestern Illinois. Uh, thank you, Governor, for your support. I also wanted to say uh, Mayor Ham, from the very beginning, has been supportive of this endeavor. When Curtis actually bought the racetrack, literally within the next week or two, the track was going to be sold for scrap, and this would have never been a reality. But it was his vision, it was Mayor Ham's support as well as the support of all of our legislative leaders who are here. We all work as a team to make sure that we do the best that we can to bring things back to southwestern Illinois, to great jobs, economic opportunity, and to promote, promote events such as this. So with that, uh, I would like to once again congratulate uh, Curtis. I'd like to congratulate uh, the governor for his support and congratulate him for making this the Illinois 300. And I would like to introduce a great senator from this area, Senator Christopher Bell. Is it morning? Good afternoon. As a kid, my brother and I would watch Speed Racer and every Saturday morning. And we would argue over who was the best, Speed Racer or Racer X. That argument never was settled. Every Christmas on our wish list, we had a Tyco race, racing track. And I just don't know how my parents dealt with 
all of the noise that came from that racetrack and, and how they navigated the whole living room because the racetrack was all over. And then we hit the big leagues. We, we got an Atari and then we, we got the Night Driver video game. And we played on those games sun up to sundown on weekends. If you can tell by my stroll down memory lane, I am really, really happy to be here. As my mom would say, you've come full circle. I am gratified that the great city of Madison was chosen for millions to see. The community here has made essential investments to create a raceway that brings diversity, revenue, and excitement all together. A send-off in style on the radio for the retiring commander of Peoria's 182nd Military Airlift Wing, based near the airport. Brigadier General Dan McDonough joined WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show to share his story. So a week or so ago, we, ha we have a, a, a friend of the show. Yeah. Uh, I would say that you and I, we, you and I have met uh, this guy a couple times. Uh, we know that he listens to the show, and so we, ha we've, we have a relationship. But he's never been on the show before. No. And a week or so ago, uh, it was my understanding, and I think a lot of other people's understanding, that he retired. Mm -hmm. That he was retiring as the commander of the Peoria's 182nd Airlift Wing out there uh, at, uh, by the airport. <laughs> That's where they do that. Uh, the air and commander of the Illinois Air National Guard. Now, I thought he retired. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing I know, bam, yesterday I find out that it's not a retirement. He has been um, made Brigadier General. Yeah. And so I want to say good morning to Brigadier General. Uh, is that the way you say it? I, I uh, yeah, feel, I think I feel that's like right. I don't want to mess this up. This no. is pretty important. Yeah. Dan McDonough. Hi, Dan. How are you? How are you doing? Uh, I think, you, you know, you got it right. I think that might be the first or second time I've heard those uh, words put together that way with uh, Brigadier General, my name associated with it. So that's pretty cool. It is super cool. I, I Take us through this. So last week I saw this whole thing, your last flight and all at the 182nd. And and what was happening that day? What was, what was Take us through that first. Well, that's that that's what actually happened. Well, you know what happened, but... Uh, my, it's called the Finney flight, the final flight in a military aircraft. And so uh, regardless of whether I got this position or not, my flying days in the C-130 or in the military are over. So the, the military does a great job of making that a special day. And certainly here in Peoria, they, they did. I mean, they did an amazing. Yeah, I was telling people, it must have been the pollen in the air because <laughs> I, yeah, I had quite a few times where I, I was having a tough time seeing. Cause yeah, of, your eyes were water a little bit. Yeah, so, yeah, I, yeah. then they you know, douse you with the fire hose and everything. It, it yeah, wait a minute. Don't, don't gl wait a minute. Don't gloss over that, uh, Brigadier General. Let's go over this. <laughs> okay. They douse you with a fire hose. What is the history of that? What's the significance of that? You know, I was afraid you were going to ask me that, and I, I don't know. Uh, I looked it up on the Internet before it happened to me, and it's just kind of one of those things that it probably started off, and then it just got, well, hey, well, this guy's an even bigger guy, so let's, you know, let's pour a, let's get a fire extinguisher out for him, and then, well, this guy's, uh, you know, he's a really big guy, so let's get a fire truck out there, yeah. and now we'll get two fire trucks, and we'll get ten fire trucks. So, yeah. but ultimately, you know, it used to be, the, they would take a fire hose and get pretty close to you and just really blast you, you know, and some guys that are maybe not as big as I am, you could 
toss you right down the ramp. You know? That is hilarious. <laughs> it's a little bit dangerous. Yeah, so, so it, it's a big day. You get all dressed up, and then they hit you with a fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> That's fun, man. Yeah. That's fun. So I think a lot of us thought, at least I did, and, yeah. and I even saw some people commenting on Facebook, that that was you were done. That you were retiring. Off you go. Uh, it was just really your last, the Finney flight, as you said. So then, what is the story of this Brigadier General opportunity? How did that come about? Well, it, it ultimately, and that was really difficult for me too because I knew this was coming, and you know, people were saying things about retirement, and I would say, "Well, yeah, I'm getting ready to leave," and <laughs> and uh, and so, just because of the way the process works and how difficult it is to get through Congress and all that uh, to get your get approved. They just the the process is such that you just don't tell anybody for fear that somebody might have an axe to grind or something right. like that. Say, so, oh, I'm going to say something bad about this guy, and then they got to investigate it, and then that that just delays the whole process. So, unfortunately, the way the process works is you kind of have to you have to have this. I got a secret thing for in, in for my case for a few yeah. months, yeah. and yeah, for a minute. So, but ultimately, what happened is my boss, uh, Brigadier, or excuse me, uh, Major General. He's a two-star general. Uh, Peter Nazamas is getting ready to retire, and so they, with me, I was I was no kidding going to retire on the first of June, and they they looked at that and thought, hey, well, would you want to do this? And I said, heck yes, that'd be awesome. And so that's great. They, wow. uh, they, they offered me the opportunity, and I, you know, and and so then it was all, you know, I want to tell my friends and family and everybody I couldn't do it. For, <laughs> oh my you know, gosh! For, for several months, so yeah, it was, it was just killing me inside. Although you had to put off that deck project that you were planning. Yeah, you had to build that, yeah, that yeah. your retirement uh, uh, deck. Yeah. So yeah. what does, I mean, uh, a, a dumb guy question, but what does a brigadier general do, and what will you be in charge of? Well, uh, the first question is kind of hard to do. I haven't done it yet, but the, the, I'm being funny. Realistically, what I am is uh, I will be the commander of the Illinois Air National Guard. So what that entails is there's obviously there's the Peoria Guard unit here with uh, with flying the C-130s and doing the airlift mission and some of the combat control stuff that we do here. Uh, then there's a, a unit, uh, a wing down at Springfield, the 183rd wing, which is uh, what they've got what's called an air operations center, which is kind of like a command and control function where they go. Uh, have a lot of uh, high-ranking people that, that basically run contingencies, uh, hurricanes, uh, you know, uh, any, any kind, anything that would bubble up in the world where we needed to, uh, to run, so, so like COVID operations, those kinds of things. They do that. That's a there's about oh, 900 people down there. They've also got a, a facility where they refurbish engines, uh, uh, Air Force engines. So that, that's uh, that's a pretty decent sized unit down in Springfield, and then down in the Scott Air Force Base, the the uh, uh, St. Louis area on this side of the river, there's the 126th Airlift, or excuse me, Air Refueling Wing, which is uh, they have uh, KC-135 tankers, where uh, those aircraft are the ones that uh, refuel fighters and other aircraft that are in flight refuelable. So, wow. and there's about yeah. uh, there's about 800 of them down there. So. And then there's a small contingent where I will be working in in Springfield also at the headquarters package where you know where we develop policy and. But it all comes down to logistics, and everything you do out of the air guard, everything that's in the military, everything you just mentioned, it really just comes down to numbers and logistics, doesn't it? Well, I, I would agree in in, uh, in many cases, and that's a lot of what the C-130s do. Obviously, is 
they take stuff, whether it's people, you know, ammunition, water, fuel, whatever. They take uh, intra-theater, which means uh, the big airplanes fly into, say, Afghanistan or Iraq or something like that, and then our job is to spread it around the theater, if you will, the Iraq or Afghanistan or something like that. And then from the, the tanker perspective, the KC-135s that you occasionally see flying around here, you can't get to where you're going if you don't have gas to get there. So that's logistics, you know. Everybody says, uh, I don't know what logistics is, but I know I need more of it. So <laughs> uh, Dan, do you remember? You know, oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, you did touch on another thing, too, with the Russians and the difference between the Russians and, and what, what we have right now with everybody that's serving right now. Every single one of us raised our hand and said, I want to do this. Well, that's, so a that's, perfect, a, a, that's a huge difference between the two of us. And that's a perfect lead into what I wanted to ask you. Do you remember your first day in the military? <laughs> yes, I do. It's, it, it's been a long time ago. I think I think that might be before uh, Dan started on the radio, but, <laughs> or maybe the same day. But but uh, yeah, <clears throat> it's been it's been an amazing run. Uh, it was uh, the 18th of July in 1986. So uh, it, I remember it like it was yesterday, and, and I, I remember I had to. At the time, I was going to go to pilot training, so my commitment was I had to pay back to the Air Force six years. And I thought at the time I was, I don't know, 20-some years old, six years? Holy cow, that's a long time. <laughs> well, it goes know, by in a hurry. years later, I, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it, uh, and I by think the way, like your date on that, that might be exactly when Dan started What, what, what was the date? 18th of July, 1986. I'm June, like, 9th or 10th, 1986. Well, look at you guys. I'll tell you what I'm going to start doing. I'm going to start calling Dan General. I don't know what. I'm just going to start calling him. Uh, uh, Brigadier General Dan McDonough, I am so happy for you and your wife, Cindy, and your family, and all your friends and colleagues, of course, in the military and uh, in your life. So best of luck. Uh, we uh, want to have you come in the studio one of these days. So I, we're going to have to get you before this job eats you up because I think you might be a little busy. You might be a little busy. So best of I, luck. I'm sure I will, but, but part of my uh, part of my role is to come out and you know see the community and talk to them, tell, tell a great story about what we're doing. Oh. Here. So I would love to do that. All right. Well, we'll see you soon then, and best of luck. Have a great weekend. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Cooper Banks, WNBD News.